Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13 is the scripture passage on which our sermon is based this morning. And we had taken a hiatus from the Gospel of Mark at the end of the fall, and we're back in it now. I realize from a preaching and worship standpoint kind of the awkwardness of going from the end of, the Jesus, of Jesus' story back into the middle as we are here in Mark. But I have I've thought it through, and I believe that this is what we need to hear right now as a congregation, and I trust that God will speak to us through it. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant and intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. I've always wondered, what's the significance of Elijah and Moses? Uh, I think what they, they're here to symbolize the, the law and the prophets, all of the Old Testament. It's, it's significant that here they are facing Jesus, pointing to Jesus, speaking with Jesus, sort of, that was their, always their intended function. So there they are. And verse 5, And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let, let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Which has to be one of the strangest uh, verses in all of the Bible. Why does Peter say that? It could be that if in a Jewish frame of mind, when God's glory descends to the earth, you as a Jew want to house it. So thus, the tent of meeting in the Old Testament, where the, the glory of God dwelled, or the, the temple, and um, there the, the glory of God was found. So it could be that he's reflecting a Jewish mindset. It could be that he just blurts out the very first thing that comes into his mind. He says, let's build something. <laughs> Very masculine, right? Whatever the reason, I think we can agree that the inclusion of such an odd statement in this story gives it an added level of historical credibility. Because if you were making up this episode, there's no way that you would have included something that so breaks up the flow of the narrative and it almost lowers lowers the tone of the narrative like this does. It tells us that something really did happen. Verse six. Peter did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. 
So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that that first Elijah must come? There was a a belief in that day based on Malachi chapter 4, I think, that Elijah at the end of time would would precede the end of the ages and he would kind of usher in the new age preceding the Messiah's return. He said, why is... And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? It's allusion to the cross. But I tell you that Elijah has come. And he had come in the form of John the Baptist. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Well, if you and I were on the top of the mountain of transfiguration, kind of hiding behind a bush or a tree, spying all that happened there, privy to these events. The question I asked myself this week was, what would we have seen? Like, what would a third-party observer, what 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 would this have looked like from their vantage point I have a feeling that this was a visionary experience that was given to those three disciples. I say visionary, not imaginary, because visions in the Bible are very real. From time to time, what God will do is he will peel back a layer of reality and allow people to look and see, uh, to peer behind the veil. And yet they do that when they're awake and not when they're asleep. When Paul is on the road to Damascus, he sees this vision of the risen Jesus. God peels back the curtain, and there's a voice. He hears the voice of Jesus speaking to him, and there's a light. He sees the brightness of Jesus. The people who are traveling along the road with Paul, they hear something, too, that sounds like a voice, but they do not see the light, and they do not see the Jesus, because it's like with visions in the Bible— You only get to see what God opens your eyes to see. So if you and I were hiding behind a tree, my guess is that we would see Jesus standing over there and these three men huddled up over here, maybe eagerly talking to one another. We'd see a fog, a cloud descend onto the hill, and we'd hear something very loud that may sound like a voice, maybe very distinctly a voice. But the fire and the brightness and and Moses and Elijah, my suspicion is that that vision would have been given to only these three disciples for our sake, right? The reason God did it was he let them see so that we eventually might see, might be able to peek behind the veil to see the glory of Jesus Christ. Number one, several reflections I have on the text today. Number one, most American Christians don't see Jesus like this. I say American Christians because those are the only kind that I'm largely familiar with. Uh, Most American Christians do not have a jaw-dropping, heads on your, hands on your head, you'll fall down on your face, I'm totally freaked out by the majesty of Jesus Christ. 
kind of apprehension of him. Maybe that's because God has never opened the veil to us, to allow us to see it. Or maybe it's because we have just so bathed our portraits of Jesus um, as this Middle Eastern shepherd figure with pale skin and a toga, and bathed all of our visions of, of God the Father as this just, just big guy we want to cuddle up next to and sit in his lap and give him a big hug. But we don't have a jaw-dropping awe of the majesty that he, he really does possess. Now, I could be off on this assessment. I really try not to criticize or critique our other brothers and sisters in the faith. Because uh, a lot of times those are just pretty generic in general criticisms and, and preachers make a habit of it. But it seems like most American Christians serve a completely unintimidating God. And most Christians go through the Easter season with the domesticated resurrection. We, we forget how creepy an event the resurrection would have been. I mean, if your grandmother, your long-deceased grandmother, were to knock on the front door this afternoon, you would be thrilled, but you would be overwhelmed with fright. That is the experience of everybody, virtually, who meets the, the post-resurrected Jesus. They're terrified. You know that the most, I think the most repeated command in the Bible is do not be afraid. The most repeated command after the resurrection is still do not be afraid. But that command makes absolutely no sense. It has zero meaning unless it's predicated by fear. So Jesus says to the women, do not be afraid. Says to the men in the upper room, peace be with you. Do not be afraid. At the beginning of the book of Revelation, John sees a vision of the heavenly Jesus, and he says, I fell down at his feet like a dead man, which is figurative language for saying, I passed out because of fear. And when he came to, Jesus said, do not be afraid. If you were given a vision of Jesus Christ right now, you have a sense of what it would be. You have a mental, imaginary configuration of what Jesus looks like right now. And one of the reasons that I am a bit largely skeptical about NDEs, near-death experiences, or contemporary visions of Jesus that, I mean, some of the silly things, you, you get the, the picture of Jesus like on a, um, a burnt piece of toast. You see that from time to time. People will find a picture, a vision of Jesus, some portrayal of Jesus, and uh, a splotchy painting. But in every one of those, there's nothing jaw-dropping about him. Could God say the same about the picture you have in your mind? That's number one. Number two, I want you, you older parents to remember it's a, a good time to remember because it's the time of senior high school prom. Remember that the, the very day that your daughter walked down the staircase in the middle of the house and she was dressed in her prom dress? She had her hair so beautifully 
arranged on the top of her head, and she looked so elegant and stunning and radiant. And you dads were surprised, weren't you? Because here it is, 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 your, is your daughter, she's a woman, and she's radiant. Or you, your parents, uh, who, whose son, remember the first time he came back from, for Christmas right after boot camp? And he walks through the door, this, this your little boy, immac- in this immaculately pressed Marine uniform with shoulders and biceps that are just the size of rocks, bulging out of, out of his immaculately pressed uniform. Not a wrinkle in his clothes. Imagine his shoes are so shiny, they make you, they, they make you um, squint your eyes. This handsome, stately boy to man. Do you, do you remember what that was like? Well, friends, that is what the transfiguration must have been like for God our Heavenly Father. Because Jesus had lived for endless ages, clothed in the love and light and majesty and glory of the Father. And to get to see his Son again, the way that he had always remembered him, just as he was, as he ought to be seen, must have been one of the most thrilling experiences, if we could use that kind of language, in, the, in our Heavenly Father's life. What must it have been like for him? Um, when I am reading a story in the Bible that I've read a hundred times before, an, a helpful exercise that I'd suggest to you is to try to read the story from the vantage points of the different characters. So what did the transfigurate what was it like for the father at the transfiguration? He was beaming with gladness. What is the perspective of the son at the transfiguration? Well, it reminded him of his baptism. The very beginning of his ministry, he heard the voice of God speak out, this is my beloved son. Here he he hears it again. I just wonder if Jesus, in the intervening years, did he actually doubt that he was loved by God? I mean, doesn't everybody, every human, every Christian especially if you go through really difficult times of testing and trial. If you're a pastor, trust me, you doubt the love of God when ministry becomes hard, when you're being criticized, when you know, all of that. You're opposed by the religious leaders as he was um, when he suffered. Uh, think how exhilarating it must have been to hear those words again. And one of the age-old theological questions is how consciously, how self-consciously aware was Jesus of being the second person of the Trinity? Did he know himself to be, to be the Son of God, the second person, in the way that you, you and I know ourselves to be male and female? Did he, uh, or hot or cold or happy or sad? Did he have that kind of self-divine self-awareness? Well, even if he did, which is hard to, to, to know for certain, I think to hear the Father's voice again, especially at this point in the story when he's going to be journeying to the cross, because Peter in chapter 8, at the very begin- right before this chapter, he's just said, you are the Christ. Um, and then Jesus says, I'm going to die. And he says, no, I won't let you do that. To hear, to hear it again and to feel divine glory in your body. 
to see yourself radiant and to feel it coursing through your own body must have been so exhilarating. That's the perspective of the father, perspective of the son. What about the perspective of the other three disciples? Well, these guys were uniquely privileged, weren't they? They were part of a select group of 12 who were selected from hundreds of other followers of Jesus Christ. And then one quarter of the 12, these three, they, Jesus says, I want you, you, and you, you only, and we're going to go up on this mountain. And, and he gives to them alone the opportunity to experience this, the, hearing the voice of God. Like, imagine getting to do that. Having God speak to you directly. This is my son. You, listen to him. To hear it and then to see it. These are three of the most privileged men to ever have walked the face of the earth. They had to feel that. Like, I can't believe I am getting this opportunity. Which makes their failure all the more devastating. Because where else in the story of the gospel are these three men singled out from the rest of them? Where else are they taken up a little mountain to see and experience something that none of the rest of the twelve... Yeah, it's Gethsemane. Jesus handpicked you to come and watch and pray with me for just a little while. And they failed him, it says, because their eyes were heavy. We read that passage, but their eyes were heavy. And it's, we think, like, did Satan uh, slip them a sleeping potion or something? No, it just means that they were tired and they failed him. They did not have the self-discipline and the perspective that it took to keep them awake for another two hours. Number three. The transfiguration shows us how to think about our future. We have never seen human beings as they uh, were meant to be seen. It's... uh, It's true that every one of us is imago dei. We're made in the image of God. Every one of us are are image bearers of God. But we are not fully functional image bearers. Morally, we, we do not behave the way that God would behave in the flesh. One of the threads that runs throughout the Bible is how we use our bodies specifically for depraved and wicked purposes. Not only are our bodies breaking down and decay and dying and we lose our sight and our hearing, etc., etc., but our bodies, they are given to decay and they are used for decaying and depraved purposes. That's what the Bible says. The resurrection changes all of that. At the resurrection, we get new natures with bodies that, that are used the way that they were, were meant to be used. And we get new bodies which correspond to our old body we look kind of like ourselves but but better right we we get to jump and dance and 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 run a marathon and do all those things that we wish that we we could do and can't in our in our frail state so we get a new body a new nature to use our body for a new purpose and a new body that is is wonderful and looks kind of like ourselves but is better and 
and is, the Bible says, dot, 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 and is glorious. Philippians 3.20, the Lord Jesus Christ will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So that's Jesus. He glows. He's so full of bright, hot, white light. John sees him at the beginning of Revelation, and he says he is luminescence in in the full. Um, Paul sees him on the road to Damascus. Stephen sees him when he is being martyred, and there is bright light. What are we saying? Are we saying that our bodies will shine after the resurrection? Yes. (laughs) I really believe they will. If you tell a seven-year-old boy that, that your body one day is going to shine like a flashlight, they're like, cool. (laughs) You tell a 17-year-old girl that, they don't think that's quite so cool. (laughs) Are we going to glow? Are we going to shine like stars in the skies? Maybe. It's the challenge, and I've used this metaphor before, it's like the challenge of describing the color blue to somebody who is blind. And you can't say it's blue like blue is like the ocean, the color of the ocean. That doesn't work to a blind man. You have to use some other common reference point. Blue is like a a soft, fluffy blanket. It feels that way. Blue feels like water running through through your fingers. And all your language is going to do to a blind man is approximate That which you're trying to communicate. Well, probably something similar is happening with this category we call divine glory in the Bible. How do you you tell somebody who's never even been part of that dimension what divine glory is like? Well, you, you take the brightest thing that you know of in your world, light of day. Or the the brightness, the beauty, the glory of a fire in a darkened, pitch-black setting. And you say, that is what it's like. Um, But I suspect that it's it's only approximating what is the reality. And the reality is um, we will be unimaginably beautiful (laughs) one day. That's what I, divine glory, unimaginable beauty is what is promised. Us. So at the resurrection, we will be fully functional image bearers, which means that we'll not only bear God's image morally, but we will bear his image physically, and it's going to take the form of unimaginable beauty. And that is something, if you have not given a couple minutes thought to, That is something that should occupy your heart and your mind today. Fourthly and finally, as the the rain keeps coming in, you're hanging out, you've been hanging around your local congressman. You're kind of getting to know him. You consider yourself one of his supporters. Spend a few months around him, and in fact, you decided you're going to get on his campaign team. You so believe in him. Well, one morning, he walks into the campaign team meeting, and he, he says, I, um, you, 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 meet me afterwards. 
go on a little retreat. You drive up Bogus Basin Road, and you, get, you, you park at the top of the hill, and you begin to climb up Schaefer Butte with him. And while you're there, his face starts to burn like fire. His clothes turn dazzlingly white. And George Washington and Abraham Lincoln show up right by him, and then they're gone. After that's over, you you turn to each other and you say, you you pinch yourself. Did that just really happen? How long did that last for? You've you've completely lost track of of the time because the, the whole experience was so disorienting. Next thing you know, you're back in the car, you're driving back down Bogus, passing All Saints, and you're trying to ask him the congressman questions like, um, what, what was that? What was that about? What was Abraham Lincoln preceding you? What was, you have a really awkward kind of conversation, and in the middle of the, the car ride, he says, stop. I forbid you to tell anybody about this. Scout's honor. He makes you swear. You have to carry that secret with you for the next several months. You're not allowed to tell your fellow campaign workers, not your wife, not your kids. It's a secret that must be kept to yourself. And it is killing you if you're like me to have to keep a secret. (laughs) What happens the day after the elections end? Or the day of the elections. What happens when when the elections are a classic Dewey defeats Truman and your candidate is is dead and buried, according to the Idaho statesman. According to the exit polls, he is destined to lose. There is no chance whatsoever. The headline reads, your congressman loses in, in a landslide. It's a blowout. Except there happen to be a few boxes of ballots that are still unaccounted for. They miraculously appear. Entire precincts worth of ballots come. It takes three days to count all of them. And then, and in the greatest reversal in Idaho politics, can you imagine keeping silent? After that, I mean, think how hard it was for you to keep silent before that. If it killed you to have to keep your mouth shut before that, can you keep that story to yourself? Like, wouldn't that story just be climbing up your throat, just wanting to jump out of your mouth? Wouldn't it? Why doesn't it then? There are 50 days from Easter to Pentecost. We call this season Easter Tide. I cannot think of a better 50 days during which to tell that story. You must. You don't have a good excuse not to. There are people who need to hear it. Amen.